Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's Thursday morning, the 5th of ER, and I want to say something about Israel um, and Zionism, actually, within a historical context, as you'll see. Uh, today's podcast being sponsored by a big Zionist family. The Brownwoods is here in Baltimore. Alan and Janet, they're moving soon. They're making Aliyah themselves to Israel. Their kids are now living in Israel. This is old Baltimore, now about to relocate the final pieces of the family to Israel. <coughs> uh, yeah, Zionism, of course, has been a very controversial business, but I would like to um, try to explain it my way, or at least from one aspect, and I'll get right down to it. <coughs> the Jewish people, I'm going to give a little bit of a history lesson. The Jewish people... Uh, present an interesting uh, phenomenon in the survival in the Gullahs. <clears throat> Whenever I teach a class on this, even university, you have to point out that the interesting part about, like I do a survey course from Middle Ages down to the modern times, so when you look at the situation in the Jews, there's a survival of a group as a group, self-consciously, uh, over a long period of time in a lot of different places, the Jews, but... Um, without the benefit of the usual um, tools and phenomena that enable a group to survive. Uh, the Jews had no state, as we know, after the Corbin. They had no state. Uh, in fact, they were mostly kicked out. Uh, they had no church. There are groups, many, that have survived without having a political state, but they only had a religious organization to which they paid allegiance. You know, and the Middle East is full of that. The Armenians, the, place, know, the Georgians, a lot of different groups. They have their national church. And that means that they have some organized religious body to which they pay uh, allegiance. And that's sort of like a substitute as a glue to hold them together. But we Jews that didn't have that, not after the, the, the Sanhedrin was destroyed. You know, the Sanhedrin went out of business like in the 4th century, whatever. Uh, so... You know, if you're Jewish, it means you don't have a country, and you don't have, uh, they're physically kicked out, you don't have a religious group, no official hierarchy, no Sanhedrin, as we would say today, uh, and they also lack geographical contiguity, which means, Bishlam, if you told me all the Jews lived in the same place, so even if they didn't have a country and a church, but at least they all see each other, mingle with each other, hang around each other, are in physical contact with each other. And Das Alain makes it that you have the survival of a group as a group. But as we all know, in the case of the Jews, this was not the case. I think we're the only group like this. I think. And certainly the only group to have a high culture. Uh, in spite of the absence of these three uh, phenomena, the Jewish people, scattered as they were around the world, with no real physical contact between one and the other, was not even the slightest attempt to create some kind of national organization or meaning. There was never a, even an idea, Havamina. Let's say, for example, all the Gedolim in the time of Rashi or the Rambam or whatever should get together to, to meet and discuss something. The most you had, the most, was like the Varabarotsis for a little while, things like that. Very rare. So here I am, I'm in, let's say, in Middle Ages or you know down to the 19th century until... I live in Poland. I'll never see a Jew in Yemen. Vice versa. There are Jews in Morocco. There are Jews in England. They don't see other Jews. Not physically. They don't marry other Jews. They're pretty doggone local. And as we know, there are some differences in Hagim and things like that. Uh, in spite of what I just said, which theoretically should have con constituted a very powerful centrifugal force, a force that would pull them all apart from each other. The Yemenites would go in their direction, the Ashkenazim would go in their direction, the Algerians would go in their direction, and it ended up having nothing to do with each other. That did not happen. 
the opposite. The Jews, wherever they were, even though they were totally scattered, all the rest of it, created a kind of a nation in the diaspora with a common literature. That's what we call the Torah literature, the rabbinic literature, right? Rashi lived over here, the Rambam lived over there, the Ramo lived over here. But somehow or other, books circulated, the ones that did everywhere. And they created a pretty doggone uniform civilization, even with the Chalukim and the little details and the Menagim and all the rest of it. So down the centuries, if I was Jewish and I had a business trip to go somewhere else, I would pretty much fit in. I realize the Yemenites do it somewhat different than us. And uh, like I say, you know, the Hasinim have this way and the Sephardim this way and the Italians a little bit different. But essentially it's the same, right? Shabbos is Shabbos, Yantav is Yantav. The davening is pretty much the same, even given the little differences. And the Matbeah was the same. Now, how did they do that? You see, this is very interesting. How did they do that? In addition, mentally, all these Jews felt connected with one another like they're members of a nation. A nation, I say. But a nation which, for certain reasons, has temporarily lost their homeland. But one day we're going to get it back. All the Jews saw the reality that way. Right, right now, we, we are a people. We're temporarily kicked out of the house. But we're going to get it back. How exactly is going to happen? Different opinions. But it's going to happen. It's going to happen. That's a key part of the davening. Key part of the whole hashkavan. So, you have a very, very interesting phenomenon. That the Jews everywhere, survived as a people mentally. Physically, they were apart in a hundred ways. But mentally, if everybody agrees to think the same way, that itself constitutes a certain reality. Almost, a, 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 almost an objective reality. It's very interesting what I'm saying. If I belong to a club, I don't know, called the uh, uh, Mickey Mouse Club, and you do, and you do, and you do, and everybody belong, agrees to belong to the Mickey Mouse Club, even though the Mickey Mouse Club doesn't exist. But we all hold that it exists. You see? That makes it exist. And if part of the Mickey Mouse Club is, you know, every Thursday to get together, scream and burp, and if everybody agrees to do that, it doesn't matter whether it's silly or not. That, and you do it century after century, that itself creates a certain reality. And that's what the Jews did in the diaspora for 1900 years or so, approximately. Now, I always try to, in my classes and talks, I always try to sum it up in my own words by talking about what I identify as, um, uh, what shall I say over here, uh, the four pillars of traditionalism. I always put up in the board for my classes. Uh, it's my way of summarizing the whole phenomena. Fundamentalism, number one. Nomianism, number two. Autonomous coercive communities, number three. And cultural insularity, number four. Uh, fundamentalism, I mean Jewish fundamentalism, you're not Christian fundamentalism, is the belief that number that the Torah is a, a historical document. There is a God, there was a creation, and most importantly, in other words, it's not a fairy tale, it's not a mushal. It really happened. How it happened, it's always chalukadeus, but... That it happened, it happened. And most importantly, there was a guy named Moshe Rabbeinu, and there was a Maimon Har Sinai, and there was a giving of the Torah by Hashem to Jewish people. And most importantly, the Jewish people were chosen as an Amon Nifchar, Am Segula, with everything that flows from that. You see, all the Jews, or the overwhelming 99% of Jews, believed in that in some way or another. In some way or another. Uh, if you ask them actually what happened to Har Sinai, or how Moshe did it, you have different opinions. But that it happened, it happened. And the other events of the Tanakh. This was the fundamentalism. Nomianism means uh, that Judaism expressed itself in practice more than in Hashkava. Right? So in other words, everybody said you got to keep Shabbos. So we can argue over 39 Malachas, 38 Malachas. Do you do, uh, you know, a Borer this way or that way? But you express your Judaism through deeds. Through rituals, through ceremonies. The Hashkafa part was taken care of by the fundamentalism part. But it doesn't matter at the end of the day whether you hold Hashem had a, 
a tape recorder, or, or just mentally conveyed it to Moshe or something like that. Doctrinal differences didn't matter, which is why you find in the Gemara so many different opinions in, in Agatha diametrically opposed to each other. The fact that, that they lay them out like that shows there was no attempt to coordinate them. But when it comes to halachic practice, the whole Talmud is about coordinating that. If it says in Gemara over here, this is okay. It says in Gemara somewhere else, it's not okay. Or in Rishon, you got to work it out. You see? And so, the way Jews were, they had to practice. Like I said before, if I moved and went on a business trip in the year 1100, 1200, 1400, whatever, from Poland to Italy, you know, maybe they have Hashkafah slightly different, but Shabbos is going to be Shabbos. And if I see that they do, uh, I don't know, you know, Mamarech a little different, I'll say, why do you do Mamarech different than we do in Poland? And they'll say, well, because we hold this, and this one holds this. The practice is the Iker thing. You know what I'm saying? Not the uh, Hashkafah parts. Not the uh, uh, theology, shall we say. There wasn't any. So, yeah, the fundamentals were the nomianism. So again, I could go to Persia from England, but, you know, when Pesach comes around, there's going to be a Seder, and it's going to be four cups, and, you know, there's going to be matzah, and this and that and the other. Okay? Now, the third thing is autonomous coercive communities, the Kehillahs of old, where because of the Jewish situation and the Geisha situation, wherever the Jews lived until the 19th century, in the Christian countries and the Muslim countries, they were given a certain autonomy almost always. Which means, for, 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 for the basic reason that the society and the state define itself in religious terms, so let's say, for example, they were in Europe. Every place they were in was a, was a Christian country. That's how it defined itself, as a Christian commonwealth. The same way we Jews would have defined the kingdom of Eretz Yisrael back in, I don't know when, uh, time of Dovin or whatever, as a religious entity. You know what I'm saying? Not a, um, not a, uh, what shall I say, a secular entity. So, since wherever the Jews lived, it was in a country or a society which politically defined itself on a religious basis, obviously the Jews are not members of that religion. They couldn't be full citizens, equal members of the group. So if they were allowed in, for whatever reason they were allowed in, usually for economic reasons, so they were uh, assigned a separate status, which happened to be what the Jews wanted anyway. I always called it the perfect storm. And therefore, the Jews wanted to be like sort of politically separate, subordinate, of course, to the Galicia government. That goes without saying. That goes without saying. But they wanted to be politically subordinate. Uh, uh, have, I'm sorry, to have their own uh, law system, their own court system, and so forth. And the different countries allowed them to have this in one level of autonomy or another. It varied. They allowed them, the Jewish communities, to apply coercion, which means they're a real uh, political entity, not just a club, to one level of coercion that was allowed by the Galicia society or another level. In one extreme, you had, like in Spain, in the time of, I don't know, the Rajah, where you could actually do death penalty. The Jewish community could kill people if they wanted to, or Michal Shabbos, to the other extremes where they had very little uh, uh, coercive power, like in Italy. This is a matter for history, historians. Uh, so that itself was a very important glue. If I was born, I'm just off the top of my head, in uh, Paris in the 1200s, I was, and I was born Jewish, I have to listen to the rules of the Jewish community. And, you know, if they say I can't open the store on Shabbos, I can get punished if I do. And the Christian government was okay with that, for whatever reason. I could convert to Christianity if I didn't like it, but that's the only way out. You see? So Das Alain makes it that the group survives as a group. Because one of the things they're going to do is try to in enforce conformity with the norms for all the members of the group. And obviously, in marriage and not intermarriage. Right? And you're going to talk the same, you know. So this was, again, a very, very, very important third pillar that explains the Jewish survival as an identifiable group uh, century after century, despite all the difficulties. Same thing, of course, in the Islamic world. And the fourth thing, I always say, is cultural insularity. Because cultural insularity is part of, certainly, the rabbinic literature, 
the idea that you don't hang around Goyim, and you're not interested in the Goyim stuff, and if you are, it's very, like I'm saying, marginal. Uh, certainly, it should not uh, claim any sort of equality or uh, a primacy vis-a-vis the Lumini Kodesh. And, it would even, and, and, you know, there's been variations in the cultural insularity. You know, Rashi was more culturally insular than the Rambam. Rashi didn't have a secular education, the Rambam did. But even the Rambam, at the end of the day, spent a lot more time in the Jewish stuff than the Geisha stuff. And most people were not like the Rambam. Okay? So if I'm born in the Jewish community, I have to listen to what's coercive. And the norms are those of cultural insularity. Uh, this is going to be a very powerful reinforcer of social conformity and social norms. And will do a great deal in terms of uh, contributing to the survival of the group, if that's your goal. The survival of the group. Now, um, mind you, when I say cultural insularity, it's an interesting term. The I'm not talking about the Amish. The Jews I'm talking about were businessmen and things like that. And some were important business people. In business, you have to know what's going on in the world. You have to keep up with current events. Jews were always interested in politics and current events. Remember that Truman uh, Sadeshan, I think the Ramah brings it, that if you get your kicks out of listening to news on Shabbos and yakking, you can do it. That's what people did. If I was, for example, a businessman in the 1500s, the Chvese in Germany, I got to know which king is getting along with the other king, who's having a war. All this affects business. All this affects my bottom line. Can I import from this place, export from this place? Is there a battle zone on it? Is there an army contract <clears throat> to be uh, gotten or things like that? So it's an interesting cultural insularity that is a studied cultural insularity. When I'm at work, I have to know what's going on everywhere in the world. When I'm home, in my little ghetto, and it's a mental ghetto, not a physical ghetto, when I'm home, then I only talk Yiddish, and I hang around the shoal, and I yak in Jewish things in my bikes. If I'm intellectual, it'll be Jewish literature, the Torah literature. If I'm not intellectual, I just hock, you know, with my friends at the back of the shoal and things like that. It was very Yiddish, very Jewish. This was the way that uh, this glue evolved as a glue that held all the Jews together in the world for many centuries. Right? Many centuries. Uh, those who were not part of this, indeed, spun out like a centripetal force would cause something to spin away. If the Ethiopian Jews are really Jewish, if it's true, they're a good example I'm talking about. Since they weren't part of this whole business I just described, the nomianism particularly, then um, we lost track of them. That's why we don't know if they're Jewish or not. But they're exceptional. This is not true of the Jews in India, or the Jews in Persia, and the Jews, I don't know, you know, in northern Russia, places like that. They all were part of this business of the four principles. Nobody ever articulated the way I just did. I do for teaching purposes, but you get what I'm saying. And it was never sharply defined, as I said before, that, you know, what exactly happened with Abram Avinu? What exactly happened with Matan Torah? There were even some in the Middle Ages who said the Adam and Eve stories like a mushal or something. You know, it was Maimonidean controversies. The, the outlines were always rough. But, uh, and it's also in halacha, as we know. There are different minhagim out there. And when I say minhagim, there are even hanhagas in halacha. Correct? There's some kehillas over the course of time, especially if you know Yerushonim and things like that, where they did things which in other communities would be considered mechal Shabbos. Or they ate foods which in other communities would be considered treif. But that's marginal. 95% of the time, it's all the same. I would say 96% of the time, all the halachi practices were the same. So this is just, uh, you know, very, very important uh, to understand. Now, as I said, nobody articulated the way I just did. It was just taken for granted. So because it is, because everybody agreed mentally to think about fundamentals of nominism and cultural insularity, and because they were able to secure autonomous, coercive communities from the guy where they lived, the Jews were able to do what nobody else could do, which is to survive with a national separate identity, a national religious identity, separate from everybody else all around them. Ad Kedekach, the Jew, for example, living in Holland, 
feels a much more uh, tight and close kinship with a Jew from Yemen or Persia that he never, man and never will, than he does from the guy who lives next door to him in the next apartment. So, in other words, even though physical proximity would make him feel closer to the Dutchman, but the mental made him feel closer to the Jew in Yemen or in Egypt or wherever. Right? The guy could never totally understand this, but this is what happened. The problem is, what happens in the 1800s and 19th century, as we call it, when all this fell apart? That's the problem of modern Judaism. For a whole bunch of reasons, this system of four pillars started to go under crisis and fell apart for a, a lot of Jews. Starting after the French Revolution, let's say for argument's sake, around 1800 and afterwards. Okay? Under, first of all, the Jews eventually got civil. Uh, the the Goyim redefined the state, starting from the French Revolution on, no longer as a Christian entity, but as a secular one. And if it's a secular entity, then it relates to its people living in there in a secular way, not a religious way. And so the state doesn't. The secular state doesn't is not supposed to care what religious belief you have. That's a private matter. That's a brand new way of thinking about things. So from now on, France or America or Germany, wherever, says, are you a citizen or you're not a citizen? If you're not a citizen, it's one thing. If you're born here and so on and so forth, legally, you're a citizen. So it doesn't matter what your religion is. If that's the case, we call this emancipation or civil rights. Automatically, that would spell the end of the autonomous courts and communities. Wherever the Jews got their civil rights, now they're, they're the only coercive entity out there is the civil state. So in America, for example, you cannot have in this country an autonomous coercive community, even in Lakewood, even in Curiosity, to be honest. Not legally. You can't have a situation where some group has legal power over you that they can legally penalize you for opening a store in Shabbos. Can't do it. You can morally criticize someone and condemn them. You can possibly even argue that people should boycott them. But you can't do nothing to physically coerce them. If you do, they can call the cops. Right? Because me, myself, and I, and you, whatever your religious affiliation is totally your business. As far as the U.S. is concerned, today I could be Jewish, tomorrow I can convert to Catholic, the next day I can go hot and hot, the day after that I can go back to being an Orthodox Jew, the day after that I can join a reform. It's all up to me. It's all autonomy, personal autonomy is the highest value. And therefore it's not possible to have an autonomous coercive community. Uh, Jews can choose to live in the same neighborhood together, or they can choose not to. There's nothing making anybody do anything. Now, um, to right off the bat, if there were four, uh, 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 what's the right word, feet holding up the chair, four legs of the chair, just by giving the Jews civil rights, which happened in the 1800s, I removed, administratively, one of the chairs. So can a, can a chair, which was uh, sitting on four legs, can, can, can it now sit with three legs? Well, it could, it's a little shaky. But it's possible, agreed? Especially if you can rearrange the legs and so forth. Like, it's possible. It won't be so stable. Right off the bat. Now, number two. Part of the giving the Jews civil rights meant that you open up the whole society to them. They can participate whatever they want. And the other Jews can't stop you. There's no more um, autonomous coercive communities to enforce Jewish norms. In addition to that, Mega trends in modernity, including the Industrial Re uh, Revolution and um, uh, what do you call it? Urbanization, uh, which started in the 19th century, which created a brand new economic reality, the one that we're in today, resulted in Jews moved from small communities to large urban centers, so did the Goyim. And they started going to public schooling. And the Jews, the from Jews, were never able to figure out certainly in the 19th century, how to create a kehillah in a large urban environment. Today, for example, just off the top of my head, I'm in Baltimore, it's about 100,000 Jews here. It's not possible to get all 100,000 Jews 
to say we're going to join a voluntary community organization. Everybody's going to pay taxes. They're going to conduct elections every year for officers. They're going to establish policies and this, that, and the other, even in a non-coercive way. It's too many people. They don't know how to do it. <clears throat> Imagine New York City. Whatever the reason is, it didn't happen. And so the result is, now I'm, this is a long subject. I'm just making it very short. The result is <clears throat> that Jews, uh, when they move to large urban centers, and now you have unprecedentedly large numbers of Jews living together, uh, they didn't make day schools. And I'm putting it in simple language. Instead, everybody's starting in public school. Once you have a whole generation or two of Jewish children going to public school, you have the reverse of cultural insularity. It's not that they don't know about the outside culture and they only know about the Jewish culture, but the opposite. Once you have a public school and college education, they know everything about the outside culture. They don't know anything about their own. This is unprecedented. Okay? So I just took away two pillars. I'm sorry, two two pillars of tradition, two legs in a chair. It's very hard for a chair to hold just with two legs, no matter even where where you put it. It's very hard. It's very unstable. That left fundamentalism and nominism. Okay? Well, if you go to public school education, all the rest of it, that itself is going to tremendously weaken. It doesn't have to. You could be observant and still go to public school. It's possible. There certainly were people like that. But Ruba de Ruba not. Right? Uh, little by little, you dropped the nomianism, you dropped the, the Shmir Smitsis, as we all know. This became just the way people lived. All throughout Europe, all throughout America. You know, you got to work on Shabbos, you got to do this. After a while, it's a pain in the neck to keep kosher. It's a pain in the neck to do this and the other. Tires Mishbuckle, forget about it. You know? So, what are you left with? The, the fundamentalism? Modern science, and especially modern history, modern historicism, teaches that fundamentalism is a lie. And there's no good answer to that. You understand? So, a person can continue to believe. You can always be W.C. Hoffman, like I said. There's no good way of dealing with all this stuff, the archaeology, Bible criticism, and so forth. And that killed, for most Jews, the fundamentalism, the belief. Uh... This is what happened to many people's great-grandparents and grandparents, uncles, aunts, and so forth. And so you have, for the first time, the what's the word, symptoms of this problem among the Jews. There popped up different ways of defining Judaism, Reform Judaism, Conservative Judaism, this, that, and the other. It never existed before such concepts. Right? There started whole ideas out there that Judaism is not even religion. You don't even need the God part. Just have secular Judaism. Whether this kind of secular, that kind of secular, probably the biggest movement was the abandonment of all connection with Judaism whatsoever. There's a million people out there, a zillion people out there, who are Jewish, but that's it. They they never converted. That's true. The mother was Jewish, but they have zero to do with the Yiddishkeit, anything Jewish whatsoever. This is most people. I hate to say it, I'm sorry to say it. This is most people. They are Jewish. You can read biography after biography of this person, that person. They were Jewish, but there's nothing in their lives. No Judaism whatsoever. And if there is, then there's one time, two times in their life, you know what I mean? Nothing real. These were sweeping trends. The Frum didn't know what to do with this. They said they had no answer to this. And um, and like Christopher Sanchez said, it was like a, tr- a train, uh, a, a, a car driving, uh, uh, crashing down the mountain. You know, you can't stop it in its progress. So in this situation... The Jewish people, as a people, started to disintegrate. The intermarriage rate shot up. The alienation shot up. As I say before, what good does it do us if somebody's Jewish? If they have nothing to do with Judaism whatsoever. Zero. They put all their lives into the American culture, the Russian, the German, the English, the Italian culture, completely uh, you know, de- detached from other Jews and from anything. So it's not like there was a vibrant non-from Judaism going on. There wasn't. It was just non from you see? And tiny groups of intellectuals, you know, reform, this, that, and the other. Very, very tiny group, very marginal. This was the sad situation of Jews in the 1800s, as it, and it just got worse every decade. You know what I'm saying? And so what was happening was the Claudius Royal, certainly in the West, which is where most Jews lived, 
and it was creeping to the east steadily, you know, decade by decade. So the whole thing was just disintegrating. And if the conditions went on like this, you'd see what you and I are looking at today, which is America, certainly. I believe it's 72% intermarriage. That's that's unsustainable. 72% intermarriage of the non-from means they're gone soon. Now, a person can say, like, it's heck with them, you know. If you're gone, you're gone. That's a very orthodox attitude. But it's not the right attitude. It, uh, because even the bad Jews, they stole you. Uh, this has to do with the breaking up of Jews into different groups. Let me put it this way. Instead of the four pillars being something united all Jews and being a glue that held all Jews together, that became highly divisive. So the idea of fundamentalism, nomism, and all the rest of cultural society, extremely divisive today. Okay? It was into this business that the Zionism started. You see? This is a Zionist story. Because what the Zionists, and I'm talking about the ones that are not from. The ones that are from, we're never really active in anything. They're Zionists because, you know, uh, they believe in Eretz Yisrael. Okay? And maybe they believe in Kal Yisrael. They were around before Herzl, you know. But I'm talking about the active movement started by Herzl and those type of guys to actually get the ball rolling. Come up with a Jewish state. Because it took 50 years. Herzl started in 1897, the first Zionist Congress. Fifty years later, the UN voted the state of Israel to partition of Palestine into a Jewish and Arab state. Fifty years is a pretty quick time. Unfortunately, it wasn't quick enough. If they would have got it 40 years, then we wouldn't have had a Holocaust. Because instead of Israel coming in 1948, you would have Israel in 1938, which was possible, if you know the details. Uh, what's called the Peel Commission. If we would have a Jewish state in 1938, instead of 6 million being killed, look, I don't I mean, I could get this kind of discussion, but I won't. It would be a lot, lot, lot less. I'm not sure they could get everybody out. Stalin, I don't think, would have let the Jews out of those countries. But still, it could be a what-if game. If they would have a Jewish state in 1938, the, and the war started in September 39, I mean, the Jews have somewhere to run to, you know. I mean, huge numbers of the 6 million, huge amount of 6 million women saved. Okay? Uh, that's a very interesting counterfactual, you know. What if you would add a Jewish state during World War II? Uh, maybe the Arabs would have joined Hitler and that would have been bad, or maybe the Jews would have built a big army and give Rommel a punch in the nose. I mean, I don't know. It's an interesting game to play. But anyway, to go back to what I was saying, so if you're Herzl, these guys, it's 1890s, the Jewish people in most places, except for some pockets, are in an advanced state of disintegration. When I say except for some pockets, 90-some percent of the Jews in countries like France, England, America, in the 90s, were totally unfrom. In Germany, the Orthodox, with all the efforts of Hirsch and everything else, it was 85 to 15. 85 non-from, 15% from including everybody Shomer Shabbos from one end to the other. In Hungary, it's like 50%. Um, that's an interesting story. In Poland, very complicated. The from were bigger numbers, but the from were in process of hemorrhaging. Every decade, they lost more and more young people, especially the girls. It's, it's what happened. So you see, it's, it's, it's not a great situation. Okay? That's a whole schmooze by itself, but this is what was going on. The Zionists, although they didn't use the terminology I'm about to use, but that's what it boiled down to, they basically said like this. If you want Kalal to survive as a separate group, as a distinct group, which is a supreme value by us, by the from. Now, they weren't from, but they're coming from their perspective. If you want it to survive as a distinct group, we can't rely on the fundamentalism and the nomianism anymore because nobody does that stuff. You can't Rely on the cultural insularity, exactly. Maybe we can. If we'll set up a Jewish state, then at least you'll have autonomous course of community. You know what I'm saying? A state, in the modern world, a political state, is granted by everybody that it should be autonomous course of. That's the definition of a state. The U.S. is an autonomous course of community. 
Great Britain is an autonomous coercive community. Italy, Portugal, Turkey, Egypt, they're all autonomous coercive communities. They govern themselves, and they are coercive. No, I hope they are. They have law and order. You know, in America, the government hopefully can force you to do things. Now we have, in a democracy, the way for the people to express what they think the government, how the government uses its power, that's a different story. So you can vote people in, they're in favor of Roe v. Wade or against Roe v. Wade. I get it. You know, that's the political process in a democracy. But at the end of the day, we all agree, I hope, that the definition of a civilized country is that there's only one entity, but there is one that has coercive power. I can't shoot you, but the city of Baltimore can if it so decides. Hopefully, they only do it in the right time, right place. Like you're about to blow up a city. You know, said the federal government, the state government, or in Britain, the British government, so, I mean, the authorities, that makes them authorities. They have the course of power. So if you can't have any more, the old Jewish communities, which had little local, the local course of power, which they used in a firm way, then we have to have another model, which is they have to get our own country, a state of Israel, and that will get international recognition, be a real state, and that state will be able to enforce uh, the norms among Jews. What the norms were was all the big controversy. That's the non-from stuff that ticked everybody off. But at the end of the day, it's going to be at least basic law and order. And cultural insularity, again, uh, is interesting. As you know, the modern Zionist movement wanted to create an alternative Judaism. This is a Haram. It's called cultural Judaism, cultural Zionism, I'm sorry. And that became the Chilini culture of Israel. That's what we have today in Israel. It's Jewish in some respects. It's not from. It's in many situations incompatible with from. In other places, it's compatible with from. This is modern Israel. Modern Israeli culture. Uh, which is divorced from fundamentalism. That's how it defines itself. Okay? Now, the point though is the geographical contiguity. Remember I told everything I said unto you until now today is based on the fact that unlike other groups out there, other national groups, we lost our usual tools 2,000 years ago. We lost our state, we lost our church, and we lost our geographical contiguity. What the Zionists were basically saying is in the absence of the four pillars, which have fallen apart due to modernity, there will be some Jews who stay from, but it's a minority. Right? For the rove, in the absence of the four pillars, we have to go back to the old days before the base mission was destroyed and to have a state and, I don't know about a church, but you have the state and you have geographical contiguity. Okay? You have geographical contiguity. So if you'd ask the super non from, you know, Acharam, something like that, well, not him. He was a jerk. But let's say Herzl. Acharam is different. But most of it is cultural Zionists. So you want to have a state. And that all the Jews should go there, or a lot of them. Uh, and that itself will keep the Jews alive. Because if they all live together in the same place, that's who they hang out with, like any other national entity. That's who they marry together with. That's who they create their lives together with. And that contiguity, the fact that they all live together in one place and rule themselves, that is a, a way of keeping the group alive, even in the absence of the other pillars. Um, it's been the great question the last 100 years. Now Israel's 74 years old today. last 75 years, is this doable? You know, say, this is a controversy. Some will say, sure, it's doable. You have a big state of Israel, we have the, which is now the largest Jewish community anywhere, 7 million. Can't your vote. And you have the fact that everybody's living together. They all hang around all the Jews. So therefore, there's a huge uh, Jew marrying Jew rate. And everything's fine. You understand? They even brought back that everybody speaks the same language. So, you know, those are pluses in terms of the group survival. The counter argument is since it's all not from, it's hollow. And they're bringing in all kind of gayim anyway from Ukraine and who knows where. And it could it could it could break tomorrow, and if you have no frum kaitum whatsoever, they'll marry Arabs. You know, in other words, 
the 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 uh, it just retards but doesn't prevent the assimilation. The Jews can all be this is the from argument. Jews can all be in Israel, they have geographical contiguity, but in the absence of these kinds of fundamentalistic values, no monistic values, it won't prevent the disintegration of the national group. You know, this, this is how it goes. Okay, because why shouldn't somebody marry an Arab? Especially, I hate to say it, I saw online, as of this minute, the Arabs now outnumber the Jews in the whole area of Eretz Yisrael. In other words, in this, within, the, within the Green Line and in the Shachim, if you count it all together, the Arabs are a little more than the Jews now, uh, which is not a good thing. Now, um, but that means they're going to be omnipresent. You know, uh, this is the social reality. The social reality. So if you have no fundamentals, you're totally chilni, why shouldn't the guy marry an Arab girl or vice versa or something like that? Like, why not? And Kabbalahum are the other groups. So these are the issues that render. But looking back at least 75 years, you know, nobody was a feature, it did work in the sense that you take all these people, especially I'm talking about the Namfram, who otherwise would, um, who already were in the process of losing the fundamentals of nominism, and you leave them out in the diaspora, assuming that they weren't killed by Hitler, of course they're all going to marry. No, they're going to, they're going to disappear from the Jewish people. This way, you're keeping the group going, which I say again, the keeping of the group going is a supreme value in Judaism in the mystical level, and from a just very practical, cynical level, like the Pontifex Jerobi used to say to South African Jews, it's very important to keep the guys going, the group going, because sooner or later they'll come back. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Take a guy that's super anti from But his kids or grandchildren probably will come back one day. You know? Ask a guy from Orsameach, from Chalabavich, all the rest of it. Sooner or later they'll come back. But not if they marry out. Then they're just gone. Then the chain broke. You see? So take a certain guy, and a nice guy, he's totally not from, he marries a guy, even if it would have been that his children, later on, somewhere along the line, would have encountered somebody or something, and they would have become from, sooner or later, sooner or later, but now it's impossible because he has no Jewish children. You see, you know, that, that's a, that's a, a, a what's the right, right word? A, an unbeatable trick of the Yetzirah. That's an unbeatable trick. If you stay Jewish, it's a beatable trick. Because like I say, two generations, three generations, four generations, there's a good chance they'll come back. It takes time. It takes a long time. You know, but let's look around this now. And, you know, that's how it goes. So the state of Israel, per se, can be a large holding pen until sooner or later people turn around. Now, it can take 100 years, 200 years, 300 years. You know, I'm not making light of this. And I'm, uh, you know, not being a Cinderella over here, you know, with starry-eyed. But it kind of, ha- it does happen a lot. When I say a lot, I'm talking relative terms. More than people realize. If the from would act better, I think you'd see more of it. But okay, that's a separate talk. Uh, but in the absence of that, it's just the reality that if you don't have it, if you didn't have an Israel, and they dropped the fundamentals, the nomism, the cultural insularity, the other one, cultural insular is a biggie. People know zero about Jewish. If you live in Israel, you know about Jewish. Maybe the wrong kind of Jewish, maybe the right kind of Jewish. But you know, you know, um, it's in Ivrit, you know, it's 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 Jewish. So you're so to speak ripe for the next guy that you come across from Chabad or from or Sameach or from uh, you know, whatever these Aisha Torah or one of these types of things. You know, you're like ripe fruit, so to speak. Uh, otherwise, they're coming with zero, zero token. So to replace the, so I I leave you just with this thought, because this is how I locate Zionism in the modern Jewish era. It's all from the era. For those who still are from those who still adhere to fundamentalism and nomism, and the from community has a, just a natural tendency sociologically, to trend towards cultural insularity and autonomous scores of communities. Uh, I would say the whole idea that the firm world has moved to the right 
means it's moved towards, towards a greater cultural insularity. But at least they strive for it. It's a difficult business nowadays with the cell phones. I mean, the iPhones, I get that. But nevertheless, it's happening. Uh, so the trend toward cultural insularity just is a natural corollary from the fundamentalism. And very interestingly, the trend towards autonomous course of communities is also there. It can't be really uh, autonomous and coercive in, in the traditional sense of having legal institutional authority like it used to be in the previous centuries, not in the modern 21st century secular environment. And I don't think most of us even want it. But nevertheless, there's a tremendous social pressure to conform, right? Uh, that we kind of do want, uh, unless it, you know, breathes down our personal necks. But the social pressure is there. You move to a from neighborhood, you live in a from shul, do all the rest of it. I mean, there's a pretty big num amount of social pressure. Not exactly autonomous coercive, but it's coercive in, in the social sense. <clears throat> the Hasidic movement really came up with this. Not on purpose organically, in which they've created very powerful social pressure realities, uh, enforcing conformity, uh, which in many respects is actually more powerful than the institutional one. Because the institutional one, you can always, you know, play games with, run around behind the back, you know, not uh, listen. Uh, but in uh, in the charismatic communities, which is what the Orthodox communities have become, uh, they've either survived charismatically or they haven't survived at all. In uh, these communities, how should I put it? The social pressure is very powerful. So... Here we are on the 74th uh, birthday of Israel, which again has restored the geographical contiguity. We don't know the way the Ashkacha necessarily goes, but if going by the last 75 years, Israel started with 650,000 and now is uh, 10 times that. Right? It's uh, almost 7 million. 650 times 10 would be 6.5 million. So it's more than that. So in 75 years, there's been a huge accretion of the population, partly by local and partly by Aliyah. That's a big trend in our time. Today, as I mentioned the other day, for the first time in a long, long time, in a thousand years, uh, maybe maybe as long as 2,500 years, uh, the Jewish community in Israel is the largest, and it's nearly 50% of the whole Klai Israel, because uh, about 15 million Jews altogether. You have seven in Israel. The problem, of course, I say is the Arab population is actually getting bigger if you regard the Arabs within the Green Line and in the Shtachim together as one group. So that's a problem. Nobody knows where that's going because that's they're going to push for having one state, Jews and Arabs, and, you know, oy vey. But so far, the trends are towards the reconstitution of statehood the, uh, the the powerful geographical contiguity, they haven't reached the point of of uh, of restoring a church. Although in a weird way, an extremely weird way, the state of Israel and Dafka, the state of Israel, has been the one to restore the church. It's a weird story, because I'm talking about the Rabbanut. Israel is the only country in the world in which the Rabbanut actually has legal power. So that's not much like a church. I'm, I'm using the word not a church building, a church organization, a hierarchy. You understand? The, it's, it's, it's remarkable. Uh, the, all these chilonim, there's a long story behind it, going back, you know, drove cook and all this business. But um, it ha whatever, the ca whatever the background is, the state of Israel is created for the first time ever in the only place in modernity where there's actually a church. The hierarchy. There's a there's a chief rabbi. There's a guys under him. There's a set of ecclesiastical courts, as they call it. There's the base and agarol, whatever they call it, Yerushalayim. They have subordinate basins and so forth. Uh, and and that's something that the Haredi world is sort of like not Goris, although now they 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 do it Goris it for jobs. So it's a, it's a weird kind of business, but nevertheless. You have had uh, a state, a kind of a church, and certainly geographical contiguity, 
uh, and it has powerfully replaced for lots and lots of Jews. Remember, seven million in Israel. There's lots and lots of Jews. Uh, the the uh, four pillars that used to characterize the glue that held them together. I would just end by saying, and the existence of Israel has, in a certain way, certain way, been mechazek, the non-from Jews around the world to continue to remain Jewish. Okay? There's a ton of Anglo-American Jews, less so today, but still there are plenty. Those of you who are my age or older remember these ladies that used to belong to Hadassah and all those other Zionist stuff, and you know, Israeli dances and so forth. You can make fun of it, not make fun of it. It gave them some positive tension with their Jewish identity. I wouldn't say it's a replacement, obviously, for being from, but it was a replacement in the sense that being from wasn't an option for them, and this provided them something to continue to be Jewish. And like I say before, it's like all important to, to, for people to continue to be Jewish and marry Jewish and so forth, because then, sooner or later, chances are somebody will become from down the line. Sooner or later. Uh, life is more fluid than I'm laying it out. After all, it is possible, you know, uh, it is possible, oh, how should I put, we have from moving out of the ranks also, becoming unfrom. But that's fairly marginal. That the back and forth has always been there. It was the same thing in time Rabbi Kiva, you know, that didn't change. The general trend is what I'm talking about. The general trend has been in this very interesting direction. These are just a few historical uh, context thoughts that I want to lay out to you on this day. Uh, and in my personal opinion, it's better than all the rhetoric here back and forth because I don't think most people get it. I don't think most people know the historical circumstances. And I've only scratched the surface, but at least I scratched the surface today. So thanks to Alan and Janet Brownwitz and family. And with that, I wish everybody a good week. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.